The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I, I told him I love this week. It's the one week I get to wear my UMHB LSU shirt that you gave me there. And uh, I'm afraid my team's going to be so bad this year, this is the only time I'm going to speak from the front. So uh, that's about it for LSU. Some of you shouldn't be laughing out there. You're Aggies, and you shouldn't be laughing at my team right now. I can tell you that. Actually, we lost so many guys. That we got a couple of guys out of jail finally, so I think they'll be playing. <laughs> and then we had eight guys to go to NFL. They took a pay cut to get there, but they finally made it up to the NFL. So, you know, it's been a good deal. So, uh, really, we, we delight having you guys. We're going to let them out uh, first after our service, guys. They're going to have uh, lunch at the Outback. And so uh, TBC is going to stay seated. If I forget that at the end, let these young men out. And uh, they're going to go back there and uh, eat. I think we've got... Uh, One taco each for these guys or something like that. Okay. Uh, Just one thing for my TBC folks. Uh, Many of you have been on the receiving end for many years. You've been taught the word. You've been in uh, Bible studies, et cetera. We have a great opportunity to minister to kids on their level. If you look in the bulletin uh, you've received on the way in, uh, we have some needs in the area of children ministry. Uh, On any given Sunday during the school year, we average about 500 kids from nursery through fourth grade only. So 500 kids nursery through fourth grade only between the three services. And uh, to accommodate uh, teaching those kiddos, we need about 120, 130 volunteers every single week. So that's a volunteer army coach. And uh, so our guys step up to the plate and do that, minister to these kiddos. And uh, it's a great opportunity to serve every week or every other week during the school year. Book of Hosea is where we find ourselves. So open your Bibles or your apps to the book of Hosea. It's on page 1334 in my Bible, if that helps you, and uh, we'll find that together. Hosea. Book of Hosea, if you have been with me on the mission field or have been with me as I've spoken at some of the camps, uh, you've probably heard me teach on Hosea. It's really, uh, when it comes to teaching pastors overseas, I almost always start with this book because it's such a great love story of God's love for us, illustrated through the nation of Israel. Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea was this in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For this land commits flagrant harlotry forsaken the Lord. Hosea, go find you a wife who's going to become a prostitute. And the children will be products of that woman. And the land the land that, uh, of Israel resembles that. So what we're going to see today is a picture. It's a story of Hosea the prophet and his family who become a living illustration of Israel's unfaithfulness. Father, as we look at the word, it's our prayer to see it, to understand it, and then to apply it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Embarrassing moments. We've all had them, haven't we? I mean, we've all had embarrassing moments. In fact, uh, when I've done Hosea at camps before, I'll tell folks, okay, I'm going to have four of you share your most embarrassing moments. So this morning, I'm just going to call names out. How's that? And not really. We're not going to do that up here. I wouldn't want to do that. But here's the reality. We've all had embarrassing moments. And uh, Bev and I have reflected on this many times. Probably, I've been here 32 years ministering at TBC. We've been together at those 32 years as well, obviously. And uh, one of the most embarrassing moments, we're thinking through this, talking about it. We used to meet. We didn't have an auditorium like this. We just met in the chapel across the hallway over there. And uh, on one particular Sunday, my folks were visiting from New Orleans. And so uh, this is about 25 years ago. 
And so uh, we are a close-knit Italian family. And so uh, my mom walks by and my dad walks by and then my sister walked by. I thought it was my sister anyway. And uh, I mean, we're close-knit, so I reached up to tweak my sister on the fanny. <laughs> Except it wasn't my sister. In fact, it was the wife of one of my elders. My whole career flashed in front of my face right there. I thought, that's the shortest tenure of any pastor around, man. And all of a sudden, you talk about embarrassment. I still apologize 25 years later every time I see that lady. I mean, you've had embarrassing moments, haven't you? I mean, we've all had them. Uh, One author writes that uh, one Sunday morning in church, we brought our four-year-old in with us because children's church, he couldn't go to children's church that day for some reason. He said uh, it was a long service, and at the end of our service, one of the elderly men from church comes up to pray. And so the elderly man said, uh, when he got to the pulpit, shall we pray? And my four-year-old stood up in his pew immediately and said, no, let us go home. That's an embarrassing moment. Then there's a story, and you've heard me use this before, of a four-year-old boy who wouldn't give up thumb-sucking. I mean, he still sucked his thumb at age four. They tried everything. You know, Mom said, we tried bribery. We painted his finger with lemon juice. We painted it with vinegar. We bribed him. We did everything we could to discourage the habit. Finally, she said, I looked at my son one day and said, if you don't stop sucking your thumb, your stomach's going to blow up like a balloon. And it seemed like that worked. But went to the park later that day, and uh, I, I sat down on the bench, and my son was on the slides and stuff, and when he came back to me, a lady had sat next to me. She was pregnant, obviously pregnant. My four-year-old looked at her, and loud enough for everybody in the park to hear, he said, uh-oh, I know what you've been up to. <laughs> Embarrassing moments, guys. You've had them. Gals, you've had them. We've all had them. The story of Hosea is a story of embarrassment and humiliation. It's not over the innocent comments of a kid or even tweaking someone on the fanny you shouldn't touch. It's a lot worse than that. It's a story of rejected love. It's a story of a man who is rejected by a wife from multiple lovers. It's a story of a prophet whose wife becomes a prostitute. It's a story of a man who honored God and loved God, but his wife went astray. This passage is hauntingly familiar. This passage is going to be painful for some of you. You can almost feel the pain of the prophet and see the anguish of a spurned love. For any who have endured the prodigal spouse, this is your story. For any who have been the prodigal, this is your story. For any of you who grew up in a family and saw a mom or a dad who was a prodigal, who who, who deserted the family, this is going to be painful. But it ends well. Because it's really a picture of God's love. It's really a picture of God's grace. It's really a picture of God's faithfulness. So journey with me to a distant land and a different, different time. And even though the land is distant and the time is different, the story, as I said, is hauntingly familiar. It's a story of Israel's infidelity. It's a story of the rejection of love. It's a story of what happened within the nation. And it speaks of Christ is our Redeemer. Israel's infidelity is illustrated through the life and really through the family of Hosea the prophet. That's what this is about. The the time of Hosea, let me paint a picture for you what the setting is like. It was a time of economic prosperity. And it so often happens when there is wealth involved in economic prosperity, either within a nation or within a family, what often happens is it creates independence from God. And that's what happened in the nation. 
the nation was economically prosperous. They were doing well. They were successful, like our teams are here, and like many of us are individually. And you're succeeding in many different ways. And what happens during those times, we become independent of God. And within the nation, they became independent of God. In fact, even though the nation was economically prosperous, they were morally and spiritually bankrupt. Morally and spiritually bankrupt. In fact, some would say, some scholars would say, in Israel's history, it was perhaps the low water mark. One of the things that was introduced in Israel and was accepted was the worship of Molech. The worship of Molech, this pagan god, included the offering of child sacrifices. Some Israelites actually sacrificed their children on the altar of this pagan god. There was also the worship of Baal, or Baal, B-A-A-L, a Canaanite fertility goddess. And what that involved was temple prostitution, what was somehow called worship. And so men would go to the temple, they would be with prostitutes, and somehow they labeled that as worship. It was a sick society. It was a culture that had gone awry. And that's the culture, that's the people that Hosea was called to prophesy to, and his family became an object lesson of. It's a story of Israel's infidelity, it's a story of a woman's infidelity, and it's a story of God's love. That's the setting. That's the setting. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says that God spoke to Hosea and said, Take to yourself a wife of harlotry. Scholars debate whether or not Gomer was a prostitute or became a prostitute. Personally, I think because of God's high view of marriage and because of the way that God deals with marriage and because of the character of God, she became a prostitute after marriage. Regardless, the point of the story is God has providentially ordained a relationship that illustrated vividly to the nation the infidelity that they had towards Jehovah. And so this family becomes a living object lesson of what's happened. Now, I've had the privilege of doing hundreds of weddings over the three decades we've been here, hundreds of weddings. Did one just yesterday, a celebration of a young couple. And as we go to those weddings, it's just a delight, and it's fun to see these young couples begin their new life together. I've tried to picture the marriage of Gomer and Hosea. They get married after a time of betrothal. That's what happened in the ancient Near East. There was a time of promise, like our time of engagement, except it was actually legally binding. And then the marriage would be consummated, and they'd begin their new life together. And in this particular scenario, Hosea has the job of a prophet. Now, that was not a great job in that day and age. Your job was to go out and call people to repentance, to point people out, to turn them back to God. I mean, you talk about being low in the popularity polls. That ranked down there with the leper and the tax collector. But Hosea would go out and he would call the people to repentance and he would come back to his new home with his new bride. And they would celebrate life together. The word prophet's an interesting word in the Hebrew language. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew and the word prophet is nabim, N-A-B-I-M. It means to bubble forth. And so Hosea would bubble forth the word that was placed within him by God. He would go and prophesy to the people and call them back to repentance. And so Hosea goes out dutifully calling the nation to repentance day after day, week after week, month after month, and God blesses them. God blesses them with a son. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says the Lord sent them a son, and they named him Jezreel. Well, that's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Jezreel is a name that people in Israel associated with death. They associated with wickedness. They associated with battle. And so here they are naming their first son a name that was a foreshadowing of what's going to happen within the nation. After Jezreel is born, when the prophet would go out to prophesy, his wife would go out to play. She grew restless. She grew distant. She grew cold towards her husband. And she became a woman who began to desert her home. As the message would inflame the heart of the prophet, 
she became distant, just like Israel became distant from the living God. And she became a picture of what was happening in the nation. Her feet would lead her away from home, and she began to share herself with other men. In fact, two more children are born. In chapter 6, there's a, or verse 6, there's a daughter who's born, and, and they say, Name her Lo Ru'ama. The word Lo in the Hebrew means not. Ru'ama means loved. This is one who is not loved. And what God is saying, you are people who no longer love me. And if you drop down to verse 9, it says, Name the next child. This is the third child, Lo Ami. Lo means not. I me people. He's saying, you are not my people. You have chosen to desert me as my covenantal people. You no longer love me. The command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and you no longer love me. You were to be my people, but you have rejected your role as my people. It's a tragic scene. It's a tragic scene. When we look at this scene, what we see is a nation rejecting God just as a wife rejected her husband. And it's possible these children were not even the product of their marriage. In fact, I think they were not. In chapter 1, verse 2, you remember it says, have children of harlotry. Then you go to chapter 2, and if you turn all the way to verse 4, it says, I will have no compassion on her children because they're children of harlotry. And so I, I think child number 2 and child number 3, Lo Ruama and Lo Ami, were probably a product of prostitution rather than the product of love. Imagine that for a second. Imagine the pain, imagine the agony, imagine the heartache. Uh, imagine all that's happening here and the struggle that the prophet goes through every day. You see, what's happened is the nation of Israel's heart had grown cold towards God, just like her heart had grown cold towards her husband. In in the New Testament, the Apostle John has given a revelation, and we have at the end of our Bibles a book called Revelation. It's John's revelation, and most of it talks about end times, but chapters 2 and 3 talk about the churches of Asia Minor. And there are seven churches that are addressed at this time, and these churches are addressed. One of them is a church at Ephesus. It's a church you would have want to have been part of. It's a church where Paul ministered for three years, where Timothy came. It, it was a church that uh, was stalwarts in their doctrine. They were orthodox in what they believed, but they had a problem. They deserted their first love. In fact, in Revelation 2, 4, it says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. The New American Standard says you've deserted your first love. You see, what happened is their heart, their heart was orthodox, but their heart was cold. They had sound doctrine, but they didn't have love. They had left their first love. If some of us were honest today, we would say, Gary, that's me. There was a time when I was a man of the word. There was a time when I was a woman of the word. There was a time, maybe when I was in high school, when I was involved in FCA or whatever else, and I walked with God, but no longer. There was a time when I pursued God, when I was a man of prayer, a woman of prayer, but I'm not now. There was a time when I looked for a community of believers to be involved with, and I was excited to go to that small group where we could share our lives together, where we could grow together, but now, now I'm not. And for you, you've got to look in the rearview mirror to remember the time when your heart was passionate about the Savior. See, same thing happens in marriage, doesn't it? Our hearts can grow cold, they can grow distant. They can grow cold, they can grow distant. Remember your first love? Remember your first love? Remember the excitement of that first love? Remember when you were first married, that excitement? September 4th, 1976, it'll be 37 years, September 4th, we've been to, we, we were married. It's a great day. We actually met on a blind date on the LSU campus, to a football game. That'll excite you guys, man. See what you got ahead of you? I've got this beautiful woman down there. It's a blind date. She was blind, I was a date, it worked out. <laughs> 
But it worked out. I, I, and, you know, we dated for about a year and a half. Then she, she ditched me, actually, for about three months. But I lost that battle and won the war. Right, babe? Right, babe? I'm still bitter about that, but that's uh, 37 years later. But I'll never forget. Never forget that first kiss. Never forget September 4th, 76, the excitement. Biloxi, Mississippi, we started getting closer. My foot got heavy on the pedal. I'm going to tell you that. What an exciting time. What about your first love? What about your marriage? See, just as we can grow cold spiritually, we can grow cold in a marriage. This many people here, it's happened. We, we can end up like this couple right here. An exciting looking couple, right? <laughs> I mean, don't you think they're excited about life together? See the, the, the bells in the back? They're celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. He turned to, to his wife and said, shall I kill a chicken tonight and celebrate our anniversary? 50 years? No, why blame a bird for something that happened 50 years ago? <laughs> she was an honorary old lady, and, uh, and she was arrested for shoplifting, actually. This lady was. And uh, she's arrested for shoplifting. She comes before the judge. He said, would you steal? She said, a can of peaches. The judge said, uh, why did you steal him? She said, just because I wanted to. That's how mean she was. Just because I wanted to. judge said, how many peaches in the can? She said, six. judge said, that's it, six days in jail. Before he could put the gavel down, the husband popped up and said, she stole a can of peas, too. <laughs> that is love grown coal right there. I'm going to tell you that, baby. That is grown coal. Hey, some of us, that's what our hearts look like. Some of our marriages look that way. Some of our hearts look that way. I mean, we're spiritually dry. We're parched. We're like the ground in Texas in August. I mean, we're just dry. So here, what do I do about that? What do I do about that? A number of years ago, we looked at the core values of TBC and what we want to be about. And what we're saying is, you need to surrender your life to Jesus every day. That's not getting saved every day. That's surrendering your life to Christ every day. Lord, I come before you to worship you. Lord, I'm a man of the word. I'm a man of prayer. I'm a woman of the word, a woman of prayer. That's how you grow spiritually. If you just pick up this book and read it on Sundays when I refer to it, you're dying of spiritual malnutrition. But, but if you're a man of the word and a woman of the word, you're growing. If you're a man of prayer and a woman of prayer, you can grow. If you worship him and honor him each day with your life. And so the day begins with surrendering my heart to Jesus. And then we find a community of like-minded believers in a group of, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people every weekend. If you don't find a smaller place to grow, it's going to be difficult for you to continue. And so I pray that you'll do that. We'll help you. Just email us on staff, and we'll be glad to do that. And then living your life on mission, that means not going to the mission field, but living your life on mission with purpose right now. You see, we all have spheres of influence that we can, we can impact for Jesus. And when you live your life on mission, that means you walk into work, you walk into a room, you walk into a lunch, and you're not wondering what they think about me, but you're wondering how can I minister to them. When you walk into an auditorium, you're not asking, what can I get out of it today? You're asking, how can I minister to that person sitting down the aisle from me? You don't live your life wondering what people think about you. You live your life on mission for the Savior. And when you do that, when you do that, then you're growing in Christ. And so as we live our lives, it's our desire to live, not for ourselves, but to live for him. Well, we go to chapter 2, and in chapter 2 it's quite interesting. Hosea tries to woo his wife back time after time, but she still rejects him. 
And it's a picture of God seeking to woo us and his faithfulness and his love and his care for us through our Redeemer that he parallels us to. Hosea would provide for her, but instead of loving her husband, she turns on him. The end of verse 5, I will go after my lovers who give me bread, water, wool, flax, oil, and drink. Verse 8, she does not know it's I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. There's an interplay here between the family and what's happening with Hosea and the nation of Israel. It's hard to separate the two, but what he's saying is God has provided for the nation over and over, but they worship pagan gods, and Hosea has provided for Goma over and over, and she attributes it to her lovers. Do you understand what he's saying? You accept the gifts, but you reject the giver of the gifts. You accept everything I give you, but you reject me. And it happened in the marriage, and it happened in the nation, and it can happen to us. And so Hosea, picture this, as a dad with three kids. And he comes home night after night to a bed no longer filled with tenderness, but with tears. A home no longer filled with love, but with loneliness. And you know what's interesting is I look at this passage, there's no chronology given here. We don't know if days flow into weeks and weeks flow into months or months flow into years. There's no chronology here. We have no idea how long this lasts. But he lives through hopeless days, through pain-filled nights. And he hears rumors over and over about what's happening. They swirl around the streets because he's the prophet and his wife has gone astray. And then an amazing thing happens. I like the way the ESV translates that, so I'll read from my iPad. In the ESV, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Go again, love this woman who is loved by another man, who's an adulteress. And if you write in your Bibles, underline these words, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Hosea, I want you to go and love this adulterous wife of yours. Hosea, I want you to go and love this wife who has been unfaithful to you, even as the Lord loves his children. See, Hosea, you can't do this on your own. You have to do it only as God has modeled it and does it for you. You can only love the way that he loves you because it's crazy, it's foolish for a man to do what I'm asking you to do. It's impossible. You can only do it as I do it. It's impossible when you've got an unfaithful spouse, male or female, to go back and love them unless it's through Christ our Savior. Then in verse 2, so I bought her. Circle the word bought there. He says, I bought her. Where would you buy someone in that culture, in that society? Who could be bought and sold? Well, the answer is simple, as you know. Slaves were bought and sold. And the buying and selling of slaves in the ancient Near East, as I've looked at it and studied, it took place many times through private transactions. You would go and buy someone from someone that owned that slave, and it would be a private transaction. But also it was done in the marketplace. It was done in the marketplace where slaves would be put on the auction block and they would be bought. So the scriptures don't tell us how this transaction took place. It doesn't tell us. Assume with me through some sanctified imagination that it's the marketplace. Hosea is told by God to go and love this woman. And he buys her, so that means he goes to the place where slaves are being sold. And when he goes to that place, I'm sure there are a bunch of people there. And as those folks are there, for the first time, the eyes of the prophet and the prostitute meet for who knows how many days, weeks, or months. The bidding begins, 
as she's placed on the auction block. Her hair is matted. Her eyes are like those of a caged animal. She's been a prostitute of Baal, the scriptures say. The bidding begins. The price of a healthy slave is 30 shekels. The bidding is low, but all of a sudden there's a familiar voice that bids on her. It's the voice of the prophet. A voice that everyone would recognize because that voice has spoken to each of them in the past. And he bids 15 shekels and a homer and a half of barley. And that homer half of barley equals 15 shekels. And so he's going to pay for her. He probably doesn't have all the money, so he has to bring produce to supplement what he has. We don't know. And when the gavel sounds, although there wouldn't have been a gavel in that day, Hosea buys his bride back. My friend, you see the picture? I mean, it's an amazing picture of what God has done for us. A man buying his wife back. I'm sure when he won that bid, and when he began to walk up to her, the crowd leaned forth in anticipation. Would he stone her? Under the law, he could pick up the stone and everyone could kill her right there in the spot. Would he send her away? As Joseph had the option to send Mary away when she found out she was the child, he could have done that. But the scriptures tell us in verse 3 that he takes her home. And he says, I bought her. And I said to her, you'll dwell in my house for many days and you'll never play the harlot anymore or belong to any man and the days of purification will be yours. And so he brings her home and purifies this one he bought with a price. The applications, let me give you three and we'll stop. Application number one, the price of redemption has been paid. Accept it. The price of redemption has been paid. Accept it. You see, some of you come from backgrounds where you think you can earn your salvation. You're hoping that if you're good enough, the good outweighs the bad, or if not, the bad can outweigh the good, and you don't want to think about the consequences. Nothing could be further from the truth. doesn't matter if you've been baptized, if you've joined churches, if you go to church, you go to mass, that's not the issue. The issue is whether or not you have personally trusted Jesus Christ in the redemption he's paid for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the issue. Eternity hangs in the balance. Eternity hangs in the balance. And one day you'll stand before the living God. And if he should ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? It's not because you're a member of First Methobacterian. It's not because you go to Temple Bible Church. Not because you've been in Bible studies. But because you've paid tithes. It's whether or not you have trusted Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, the redemption is paying the price. That's what that word means. He paid the price. So because he paid the price, there's nothing we can do to earn, to buy, to achieve. All we do is receive the salvation that he offers to us. In him, we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. When I was a kid, if you are 40 or older, you'll be familiar with this picture. If you're younger than 40, you have no idea what that is. We used to drink out of those things, actually. Now everything's out of a can or a plastic uh, container, but we used to have glass bottles. And it's quite interesting, you would uh, do something with those bottles. You didn't throw them away, did you? Coach, we didn't throw those bottles away, did we? In fact, you brought them back to the grocery store, and when you did, it's interesting what they did with them. They would uh, clean them, refill them, and then you would drink at them again. That's amazing, isn't it? 
wouldn't do that today, too many germs or whatever else. But that whole process, you know what that process was called? When, when you brought that back and you received, I think it was a nickel for it or whatever it was, it was called what? Redemption. Redemption. Isn't that amazing? That same word right there. Today we recycle, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to recycle. But there's a difference between redemption and recycling. Recycling destroys something in order to reuse it. Redemption buys something back for its original design and purpose. We've been redeemed. The one who bought us back is our Savior. He restores us to our original design, that is to be forgiven in him. And then our purpose is to live our life to glorify him forever. And so the price of redemption has been paid, but you must accept that price. Mark it down, only a puny God would allow someone to work for their salvation, to earn their salvation, to buy their salvation. Only a great and glorious God would offer his life for salvation. The price of redemption has been paid, accepted. Secondly, rejected love can be restored, so reconcile. Rejected love can be restored, so reconciled. Don't miss this great picture. Don't miss this great story. You've got a man and a woman who are reconciled. Many of you grew up in broken homes. You know the pain of being in broken homes. You know the pain and agony have gone through that. Many of you can go through reconciliation perhaps now. Some of you in this story are Gomer. You're in the process right now of living an unfaithful life. You're involved with somebody you shouldn't be involved in. You're having relationships outside of marriage. You slept with somebody this week that you're not married to. The scriptures call you a harlot and adulterer. That's what the word of God says. That's what God says. You're a fornicator. That's a hard thing to hear, but that's the truth of God's word. Now, here's the good thing. Because of redemption, you can be restored. Because of redemption, you can be restored. Because of what Christ has done for us. And we're not talking about getting saved over and over again. We're talking about coming to him. Some of you are the Hoseas in this story. He's your fellow sufferer and sojourner. Your heart is heavy right now. It's hard for you to hear this message. Some of you need to ask forgiveness. Some of you need to be restored. The message is the same. Rejected love can be restored. If you are pursuing someone who is not your spouse and you're married, If you're sleeping with someone you're not married to and you're either single or married, premarital or extramarried, dreaming about someone, dressing for someone else, desiring someone else, God's word is clear. Indulgence does not satisfy aroused desire. It only inflames it. And I'm not talking about moralism here. I'm not talking about, I'm going to do what's right because I've got to do what's right. And that preacher said, I've got to do what's right, so I'm going to do it. I'm talking about the spirit of God living through you. That's what we're talking about. The lure of adultery is that another person will meet your needs. The lie of adultery is no other person on the face of the earth, no matter how alluring, interesting, or beautiful, has the capacity to fully meet the needs of another human being. That is why adultery is the ultimate hoax. It promises what it cannot deliver. Folks that do marriage conferences, Joel and Kathy Davidson say this, sin takes you further than you intend to go, keeps you longer than you intend to stay, and costs you more than you intend to pay. In three decades of ministry here, I've had the privilege to do nine remarriages, folks who got divorced and reconciled and got back together. It's amazing stories, amazing stories. I I can tell you every one of those stories. Some of you, you need to be reconciled. You need to be reconciled in a marriage. First, you've got to be reconciled with God. Some of you, that reconciliation needs to take place between a mom, but with your mom or your dad, with your son or your daughter, with your brother or your sister, 
And maybe with the person sitting down or across the, the aisle from you. Maybe you came third hour because you don't want to see somebody here first hour. I've been doing this way too long to know that it doesn't take place. Okay? And you have the opportunity to be reconciled. In fact, Matthew 5 says, put down your sacrifice. Don't even worship. Go and be reconciled to other folks. Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. Mom or dad. There's a great story that came out of Spain many years ago. I don't know if it's true or just a preacher's tale. But it talks about a father and a son who were strange for a number of years. And it says in the Barcelona newspaper, there was an ad that was placed in it that said, Dear Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the main post office. Dad. Over 40 men named Paco showed up hoping to reconcile with the dad. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this. There are probably that many men, that many women way more who need to be reconciled with somebody today. Who is that person? I'd have you write it down, but they may be sitting next to it and you don't want to do that. But who is that person? Rejected love can be restored. And the final point is this. God is faithful even when we are fickle. You've got to love him. You've got to love God. Look at what he's done for you. He gave you a redeemer. Even when we were unfaithful, he loved us. God demonstrated his love towards us while we were yet sinners. He died for us. You've got to love him. And I'm thinking about things we love in our society. We have a love affair with these things right here, don't we? How many of you have your phone on you today? Let's see. Raise your hand or raise your phone. How many? Yeah. How many of you took off for church today, realized you didn't have your phone and turned back and went home? Be honest. Yeah. How many of you are panicked right now because you're reaching your pocket and your phone's not there? I mean, just panic right now. I mean, I, what are, what are, I, I haven't been on Facebook in a half an hour. What am I going to do? I haven't texted anybody since I... Well, some of you have. I've seen you, so you've done it. <laughs> hey, I may have one eye, but I can see. <laughs> Man, we've got a love affair with these things. I mean, some of us, we panic if we don't have it. I had a guy tell me, I can't live without it. Really? I'm doing marriage counseling with a couple a couple of years ago. Uh, Excuse me, you mind if I answer this? It's what the dude says in my office. And you wonder why your wife is having issues here with you, bro? (laughs) Duh! Actually, I I did that last hour. Shannon, our singles pastor, college pastor, said, that's so 90s, you can't see duh anymore. (laughs) How's your love for the Savior? If you forget about him, you're going to run home. Can you go a half an hour and not panic without talking to him? Hey, you know, you'll communicate on Facebook all day. Communicate with him. Really. How's your love for that Savior? Well, get out of bondage. Experience God's forgiveness. That's my invitation to you this morning. I've had the privilege to go into prison several times over the last couple of years. been a while. Some of our friends go week after week, many days a week. And, you know, one of the things I notice is you go into prison where people are in physical bondage, but oftentimes they're in spiritual freedom. Isn't that interesting? They're in physical bondage. They can't get out. But you walk in and they worship God, honor God, love God, and they have freedom. Then you go back in the streets and you meet people who are physically free, but they're in spiritual bondage because they haven't been redeemed. And it's an interesting contrast. And so I would ask you today, 
to be freed, to get out of bondage, to recognize there's a Savior who gave his life for you. You can trust him, you can know him, and you can walk with him. And you don't have to look like that parched piece of ground. You don't have to lose your first love and look like those dour old people up there. But you can excitedly live your life knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, living in community with Christ and others, and living a life on mission. Father, that's our prayer. Our prayer is you would be honored, that you'd be lifted up. If you're here today, and maybe you've heard these truths before, that Christ paid the price for your sin, but you don't know right now. If you died, where'd you spend eternal life? I invite you right now to make sure to make sure that Christ is your Savior. Would you pray with me right where you are, just quietly in your own heart? Lord Jesus, I want to know with certainty that you're my Savior. Thank you for being the Redeemer who paid the price for my sin. I know I can't earn salvation. Can't buy it. Can't be good enough. But I know that you'll forgive me if I ask. So Lord Jesus, today, I ask you to be my Savior. If you've done that, I'd love to hear from you this week. On that phone you got, text me, email me, call me. Be glad to respond. And maybe your soul is that parched ground we looked at. You are far away from God right now. You hunger and you thirst and want to be quenched. I pray that today you'll confess that before him and allow him to change your life. Father, we're grateful for the work that only you can do in us. In Christ's name, amen.